and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Hattie Williams, senior reporter, and I'm joined today by our features editor, Madeleine Davies. The big news that's broken overnight is that the church commissioners have a large stake, a multi-million pound stake, in fact, in Amazon. This comes after Justin Welby in his speech to the Trade Union Congress on Wednesday criticised the online company for, quote, not paying enough tax. Madeline, you've been doing some digging and broke the story last night. Tell me how that came about. I was just curious as to whether we did have a stake in the company, given it's the second largest in the world, briefly past the $1 trillion capitalisation mark this month. So I was just curious as to whether we did have a stake in it. I sort of felt it would be surprising if we didn't, given its size. So I just looked in the annual report of the Church Commissioners, and it was listed amongst the 20 most valuable holdings that the Church of England has. You say it wasn't surprising. Is that something that's happened before with the Church Commissioners? So I think the discovery that the church commissioners did have a stake almost indirectly in Wonga, that was perhaps more surprising because it's just not as large a company. And I think it was quite difficult to unwind because it was at some remove, whereas I think with Amazon, because it's such a large company, there's actually quite a large stake in it. And there's no sign that the church commissioners want to pull out, whereas obviously with Wonga, they did a lot of work to try and sort of unwind the church's connection to it. Obviously, it's slightly embarrassing for Justin Welby, having quite heavily criticised the company. How much influence does he have with the church commissioners? I think the question really is whether people accept the explanation that by being in the room as a shareholder, you can change a company's practice. So the response of the church commissioners is very similar to the one that they've made towards fossil fuel companies. So the argument that we saw playing out in July about whether by staying in the room as a shareholder, you can leverage that power and achieve change. And that's obviously what the commissioners are arguing about their stake in Amazon. So I guess the question to be asked is what sort of questions are they asking of Amazon? Are they asking about tax, about wages? about working conditions and is that making a difference? I was also thinking that last year in conversation with Robert Pest on ITV they were talking about the church and housing whether the church could be using its funds more in terms of developing affordable housing and Justin Welby at that point described the church commissioners as semi-autonomous and also suggested that he did have quite brisk discussions I think is how he referred to it with them so there's also the question of the distinction between the archbishop and the commissioners and the extent to which he can encourage them to move in certain directions ethically. But in terms of the public, they'll see the church commissioners and Justin Welby as very much part of the same parcel. Yeah, I think it's interesting that people are talking about the fact that we're perhaps all complicit to some extent and that there's very few of us who don't use Amazon. And so I guess the question is more than the church's investment. How do we use our decisions as consumers and purchasers? And indeed, we have our own investments via pensions or whatever to make differences on on those fronts. You can read the story on our website, churchtimes.co.uk, and stay up to date with the latest. This week on the podcast, we'll be focusing on our new month-long feature series on the religious life, from centuries-old monasteries to dispersed communities and new monastics. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. Visit churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Four years ago, the Archbishop of Canterbury said that the renewal of the church was impossible to imagine without renewal in religion. Writing for our comment section last week to kickstart the series, Archbishop Welby said, We are witnessing a revival of interest in community life in its different forms, celibate and non-celibate, communal and dispersed, traditional and experimental. 
Each of these communities, established anew, is asking the question, how do we express who we are as the people of God in this particular place and time? Madeline, you commissioned this series. Why did you want to focus on the religious life and why now particularly? So I was looking back to, I guess, the start of Justin Welby's time as Archbishop of Canterbury and I remembered this priority that he'd given to the religious life and also comments he'd made about, as you say, not being able to imagine kind of spiritual renewal without it. And I guess I just wanted us to take a bit of a temperature check as to how that was going. And when I looked back to 2009, we'd run two quite alarming comment pieces suggesting that we might be witnessing the end of I guess traditional communities as we've known them so I wanted to get a sense of whether sort of those quite doom-laden predictions had come to pass. And we're about halfway through the series now what have you learned so far? So we had a nice overview of the types of communities that we have in the UK by Dr Peter Dunstan and she surveyed the ways in which there's quite a diverse spread of religious communities so whether it's kind of the new monastics, some of the dispersed communities, oblates and I guess kind of traditional celibate orders and kind of gave us a flavour of where we can see some kind of green shoots in all three without kind of underestimating the challenges facing some of those communities that's something which we're going to build on in subsequent weeks. What are the challenges that you've come across so far? One of the things which the Archbishop has diagnosed is perhaps a kind of broader commitment phobia is what he talks about. So whether not just in terms of committing to those quite significant vows for traditional orders, society as a whole is nervous about making lifelong commitments. Interestingly, that was something which I asked Dr Eric Varden. He's an abbot and a Trappist community, which features in this week's issue. And he really questions that idea that young people in particular are commitment phobic. He said that's not really reflected in the conversations and interactions that he's had with them. So perhaps that diagnosis isn't sort of shared by everyone. And in terms of communities, how they're made up, what's the age range What's the picture of communities at the moment? So when we look at the communities which are recognised by the Advisory Council on Bishops and Religious Communities, 63% of those orders are lay women. So that tends to be perhaps sort of a typical member of a religious community today. We've also found that typically they have around 10 members or less. So seemingly quite small, although again, when I interviewed Dr Varden, he said that was actually quite typical for his order when it began in the 19th century. So sometimes we're comparing these orders to kind of boom periods, which include the period after the Second World War. But if you look a bit longer back over their history, some of these quite small numbers aren't actually atypical if you look at their whole lifespan. So he was quite positive in general. Yes, I mean, he also kind of has this idea that a religious community is a bit like an organic plant or a creature and it has a life cycle and part of that life cycle is death and being a Christian talks about resurrection as well so one of the things that he said to me was you know we've not been promised that we'll be around to the second coming so as important as the community is and as much as it brings gifts to the church and to people outside the church doesn't necessarily have an anxiety about it dying he feels that that might be just part of its life. And we've talked about communities dying but there's also kind of a sense of resurrection as well isn't there? This is what um, Archbishop Welby talked about in his comment piece for us last week, is that he particularly sees signs that God is giving renewal to communities. And obviously, closest to him, perhaps, is the community of St Anselm. 
which offers young people a year in God's time. And I know that you'll be running your feature in a couple of weeks, interviewing members of that community, but also other people who are part of sort of other waves of this new monasticism. That's right. And it's interesting getting the balance between a community that values traditional monastic communities, but also creates their own path as well. And there were some tensions there, which it was interesting to explore between the idea of new monasticism and traditional monasticism and how much they can cross over. I also spoke to Dr. Varden and he was saying that an authentic traditional community has to have certain values and that these are not necessarily reflected in new monastic communities. Things like celibacy, living in enclosed communities can't be replicated in the same way without committing to those vows. It'll be interesting to see a broader comparison next week. Yeah, and I think it's sort of a question of language as well. And so sometimes I think when you're trying to get across what some of these new communities are doing, it is easy to reach for terms like trainee monk or trainee nun. And perhaps there's some care that needs to be taken around language. So we're clear about the differences. But I think there are challenges around how we convey what these new communities are to unchurched audiences as well. And it's also about the intention of the community. So as I understand it, when St Anselm was launched, it was envisaged that people would go on to have careers in secular walks of life and would bring the values that they'd learnt at St Anselm into those roles. Although I do think it's interesting that as far as we know, St Anselm hasn't produced vocations to the religious life. So it's not as if people have done this year and then thought, could I consider joining a traditional order? Or it may just be that we're not aware of them. It might also be a kind of experiment in evangelism, as you say, taking the values of the religious life and talking about them in your workplace or to your friends and family and trying to explain how you've become involved in this way and how you can live both quite a dedicated, separate religious life and bringing that into your home life and personal life as well. Mm. I think it's really interesting how positively the community of St Anselm in particular has been picked up by the mainstream press. So the, the piece that the Evening Standard ran earlier this year in London was, I thought, incredibly positive about something which it could be easy to present as you know somewhat weird or maybe even sinister it was presented in a really positive light which I do think is reflected to some extent by some of the ways in which filmmakers are talking about the religious life so I talked to Dr Varden about things like Of Gods and Men which was about Algerian monks and more recently a Polish film Ida so it seems that I think kind of culture makers film directors and and also television people are quite fascinated by the religious life and, and often do present it in quite a positive and sort of intriguing light. So what's coming up in the next two weeks? Next week is our issue which will be exploring Brexit and so we wanted to look at an order or a community which began in Europe so we're looking at the community of Sant'Egidio which was begun in Rome in 1968 so we're drawing a a history of that over the past 50 years and then finally we will look at your piece on new monasticism and communities including St Anselm. So Madeline another busy week for features what else have you got in the paper? So on our front cover this week is a really lovely image from the Walsingham Youth Pilgrimage, which takes place every year. I was really struck by some of the writing that came out of that pilgrimage, some of the blogs and social media activity. So we've got an image from a procession from that pilgrimage. And then inside, one of the pieces that we've got in our series on Catholic mission is by Philip Barnes. And he talks about ministry to young people, particularly drawing on that pilgrimage. And we've got three other pieces, some by a priest and another by a layperson, exploring kind of the history of the Catholic movement in the Church of England, reflecting on its health at the moment and then also on its future. It's been timed on the eve of a really significant 
conference taking place in London, which is sort of being convened jointly by Ford and Faith and Anglican Catholic Future. So we wanted to take this opportunity to get some people to write on their view of the future of Catholic mission in the C of E. What kind of picture have you got from these pieces? I think some of the most interesting reflections pertain to looking back at the history of the movement and the ways in which some of that heroism can perhaps intimidate or perhaps inspire some of the lessons that have been learnt from recent history. So one of the priests notes that a lot of energy perhaps was expended on debates around women's ministry and where does the movement go now. We've also got a really nice reflection on being in a very diverse parish We've also got a really nice piece by a priest who reflects on working in a very diverse parish and he writes, Adapting ministry and mission was an urgent task, having been used to a rather cut-glass English-Anglican choral tradition. And so he reflects on the riches of the Catholic tradition, but also how that can be adapted and perhaps evolve according to the parish in which you find yourself. You've also been reporting on a Catholic event in Liverpool. Tell me about that. So this was the National Eucharistic Pilgrimage and Congress, which took place in Liverpool last weekend. It's the first time that this Congress has actually been held in Britain since 1908. So it's interesting looking back at some pictures from that time. At the time, it wasn't long since laws had been changed concerning the place of Catholics in the country. So it was really fascinating history. It's also estimated to be the largest gathering of Catholics for a procession since the arrival of Pope John Paul II in 1982. So the event culminated in a procession through the streets of the city and apparently around 10,000 people in total were present in the city for the gathering over the weekend. One of the events which was sort of happening in parallel was a conversation at Liverpool Parish Church where the Reverend Dr Crispin Paling is the rector. They were hosting a conversation between the Roman Catholic Archbishop of the city, Paul Bays, who's our Anglican bishop, and the chair of the Liverpool Methodist District, Reverend Dr Cheryl Anderson, who were all discussing the place of the Eucharist within our respective churches and our understanding of what it means to say that Christ is present. So that was a really interesting theological discussion, which I guess also touched on the fact that Anglicans can't receive the Eucharist in a Roman Catholic church. It was really interesting that the Roman Catholic Archbishop ended his remarks by saying that he longed to be able to do that and he appreciated that it was difficult for those who aren't able to receive to understand that. So he said, My prayer is that of the Lord that we may all be one. I have longed to share this Passover with you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.